Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. One of the unique organizations of the Civil War was the Federal Ninth Corps, commanded most famously by Ambrose Burnside. From early success in North Carolina to its iconic fight for the bridge over Antietam Creek, from charges at Fredericksburg to its participation in the Overland Campaign and the disaster of the crater, the Ninth Corps was continuously where the action was in the Eastern Theater. It had a side trip to the West as well, but that's for another day. Tonight's topic is Burnside's Boys, the Union's Ninth Corps and the Civil War in the East. We'll talk with author Darren Whipperman tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P O W I C Z G at ECU dot EDU. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you tonight from the Civil War Talk Radio World Headquarters Annex on Oxford Road in Greenville, North Carolina. That town is the home of East Carolina University. But I'm not there tonight, and I'm never speaking for East Carolina University, always just myself. And my guest likewise speaks only for himself, as always. I'm not on campus tonight because it's uh, not because of the construction in the courtyard of the Brewster Building that has been uh, deafening the the staff for the last several months here in uh, the fall of 2023. Tonight is the first night of, of November, uh, but uh, since August, when they were supposed to have finished the project, the renovation of the courtyard has been going on and on. Uh, they try to do the drilling at night so that it doesn't interfere with classes, but nighttime is when I come to you. But that's not why I'm here tonight. Uh, they finished the project, I'm happy to say. Uh, they, they've landscaped it and uh, looks nicer than before, which is good because it, it kind of looked like a gulag before, so one would expect it to be nicer. Uh, and hopefully it will it will stay nice for a while. We shall see. 
but I'm home because uh, tonight uh, Mrs. Prokopovich is off in, uh, where is she tonight? Dresden, I believe, this evening with a group of students. She is chaperoning on a overseas trip. They are visiting Germany, and uh, she is spending her time with them. So I've got the house to myself, and I can talk out loud without worrying about the sounds of the great British baking show rerun coming from the next room and distracting me because I like that show and I'd want to go watch it with her if she were watching that. Uh, No, I'm home alone and it's quiet here. Uh, I'm also off campus because it's too depressing. Uh, ECU football continues to uh, plumb new depths. The ECU women's soccer team that had a, a fine winning season lost quite disastrously in the first round of the conference tournament a couple days ago. Uh, bleak days are upon us. The gray light of autumn is is everywhere. Although, actually, I like autumn. I'm, I'm happy the temperatures are finally down. It is finally autumn weather here in North Carolina. Uh, it, I like autumn so much that I have sort of the opposite of seasonal affective disorder. I have more of the, the gray light of autumn disorder, or GLAD. I'm glad uh, when it gets to this time of year. It does make me wonder if they'd found a more cheerful acronym than than SAD for Seasonal Affective Disorder. Maybe that would have cheered everybody up. But not to make light of those who suffer from it uh, in real life, uh, I'm just saying I, I'm happy to see the leaves coming down in the cool weather. Also happy to have visited last weekend the CSS News Museum in Kinston, not far from Greenville. If you're ever in eastern North Carolina, uh, stop by the Brewster Building and say hello. But if you're in the vicinity of Kinston, uh, there's a lot to see there. You're not far from the Wise Fork Battlefield or from Bentonville. And in Kinston itself is the museum that houses the remains of the CSS News which is uh, surprisingly large. I, I, I toured the museum in company with a, uh, a friend, a Civil War talk radio listener. Uh, we've been sharing correspondence for several years, and he was in the area. So we had a nice visit. Uh, and I was really impressed by the museum. I hadn't seen it since just before it opened. It wasn't complete. And it really is a well-done presentation of the Civil War in eastern North Carolina as well as the remnants of this ironclad, which has a rather pathetic story. Uh, Never got to be on running aground in the Neuse River the day it was launched. But it's still uh, the the, the ribbing, the surviving frames give an idea of just how big it was. If you've seen the the Cairo uh, at Vicksburg, then you have an idea what what it looks like, what an ironclad remains might look like. And they've done a good job preserving these here. And our visit was made even better by the fact one of my students uh, was working there as a volunteer the day we, we visited. Uh, his name is Nicholas French. He did a wonderful job. And I'm putting his name out there on the air without his permission, because if you listeners have any connection with the public history site and are looking for a good hire, uh, when Mr. French graduates, uh, he will be a, a fine uh, person to employ your public history uh, location, wherever that may be. 
Speaking of locations, the best place on the internet besides this show is, of course, www.impedimentsofwar.org. Mark Gaffney is in charge there, and he keeps reminding us who the next people will be on the show. For example, next week, Robert Emmett Curran will be here to talk about American Catholics and the quest for equality in the Civil War era. On November 15th, uh, November 15th, we'll have Andrew Dalton talking to us about the uh, uh, Beyond the Battle Museum, which is in uh, Gettysburg. It is a brand new museum. Where was I? Who's going to be on the show next? That's right. Uh, Andrew Dalton's coming up uh, to talk about his museum. No show on Thanksgiving. On the 29th of November, Canisorn Wongsworth Janelai will be here. He is the co-editor, along with David Sibley, of a book called Wars, Civil and Great, The American Experience in the Civil War and World War One. And David Sibley might join us, too. We're going to see if we can get both of them on. And then on December 6th, we'll finish the fall season with John Banks in his book, A Civil War Road Trip of a Lifetime, Antietam, Gettysburg, and Beyond. Lots coming up, lots in the new year. When we get to January, we'll have the new biography of James Longstreet to start the year. Uh, So stay tuned. Uh, Check out impedimentsofwar.org. And if you're there, while you're there, click on the PayPal button. You can donate to the Civil War Talk Radio Book Fund, which is used sometimes for books, but can be used for anything. It's not a 501c3. It's not tax-deductible. It is not uh, – it accepts money in all forms, but PayPal is the easiest. You don't need to have a PayPal account. Just click on it, and there's some instructions. Uh, Look carefully, and it will tell you how you can – donate without having to actually sign up for PayPal. We'll try to get you to do that, but you don't need to. Um, Anyway, all forms of contributions are welcome. Dark money, uh, uh, anonymous contributions are welcome, but uh, let me know who you are. And uh, especially the regular contributors are, are the most welcome of all, those of you who send a few dollars every month to help keep the library shelves stacked here at Civil War Talk Radio and the liquor cart filled with bourbon. Uh, And to the rest of you uh, who have not yet donated, imagine your relief when you no longer have to make the walk of shame after listening to one of these shows and thinking, I once again have failed, failed, I say, to donate anything to Civil War Talk Radio this month. Uh, You can, you can, free yourself of that incubus with uh, a simple click of the button. Well, let's move on and talk about uh, tonight's topic. It's the Ninth Corps of the Union Army. Uh, Our guest is Darren Whipperman. He's the author of a book called Burnside's Boys, the Union's Ninth Corps and the Civil War in the East. Mr. Whipperman, are you there? I am here, Jerry. Greetings from the great north woods of New Hampshire. Thanks for the honor of having me on your wonderful program. Well, thank you. It's good to have you. Um, uh, New Hampshire is is indeed a wonderful state. There was a time many years ago, um, uh, I could recite the the entire poem, New Hampshire, by Robert Frost. Um, And now I can't even remember how it starts. How did that thing go? I met a traveler from an antique land. No, that's a different poem. It's a, it's like 13 pages long, but I'm, I'm a great fan of New Hampshire. Spent 
uh, a fond semester on Lake Winnipesaukee there when I was in college with a, the New England Literature Program from University of Michigan. And uh, uh, it, it's just, it's, it's a great state, uh, notwithstanding. Very wonderful place. Uh, uh, certain, certain quirks about the place, we'll say, but, uh, uh, but, but still very wonderful indeed. So um, you, uh, you've written about uh, Burnside's Boys here, the, the Union Ninth Corps. Uh, it, this, I gather from the, the dust jacket here that uh, uh, you've, you've written uh, other Civil War material before, but this is not, uh, not the day job. Is that correct? Correct, yes. This has sort of been a hobby of mine. It was probably 20-some years ago I said, hmm. I'm going to write a history of the First Corps, the Army of the Potomac, and it took me quite a while to get it together um, when I was still working and such. But um, I had that published in 2000, and then I just decided to do another core history, and I did some research, and I just decided that there were some really interesting aspects of the Ninth Corps that I wanted to delve into, and that's what led to uh, my second book. So why why the Ninth Corps and not uh, you know Third Corps, Fifth Corps, etc.? Yeah, well, there were two really interesting things that I I wanted to look at really specifically. Um, one, I'm I'm really interested in the Battle of Antietam and have been for a long time and. Everybody knows about Burnside's Bridge, but I think the story of what happened to the Ninth Corps after Burnside's Bridge was conquered uh, is something that, that I think has been somewhat neglected, and it doesn't get quite the attention. Uh, they suffered about three times the casualties uh, after Burnside's Bridge that day than when they took the bridge. Um, and, and that was a really interesting few hours that I really wanted to look into. And then also showing my northern New England bias uh, I was very interested in Simon Griffin, who was a, a general, excellent officer in the Ninth Corps, and he led a brigade of six northern New England regiments at the start of the Overland Campaign. And as my dad would say, they went through it like the wagon wheel. They had a very, very difficult uh, 11 months. And that brigade was really interesting to me. Some of the regiments, uh, the New Hampshire regiments in his brigade at that time, had been in the Ninth Corps for quite some time. But it also included three new northern New England regiments, the 17th Vermont and the 31st and 32nd Maine. And that was a really fascinating unit to me. And I, I wanted to take a look at how that brigade sort of fit into the overall history of the Ninth Corps. And, and just just those guys, just looking at those regiments and then later regiments that were added on to them later in the war, was a, just a, a fascinating aspect of the project to me. Well, they certainly are an interesting unit, and they do get around. Uh, they they appear in, in, as I pointed out in the introduction, many significant battles. Uh, I want to ask a, a question about publishing uh, a, a book like this, and uh, maybe I'll get the question out, then we'll take a break, uh, and, and you can answer it when we come back. But to, to set it up, last week uh, on the show, we had an author who published a book with McFarland, which is uh, uh, somewhat like your publisher, Stackpole Books. I, I would call it an academic-adjacent press. It's not a university press, but it's not strictly mm -hmm. a commercial press. Uh, pub both of them, Stackpole and McFarland, publish a mix of academic 
non-academic writers. Uh, Stackpole published my, my late colleague David Long's book on the 1864 election, The Jewel of Liberty, which is still, I think, the, the, the standard uh, academic history of that topic. Well, uh, last week, the book said on the inside front page, this book has been peer-reviewed, which I've never seen written on a book. If it's university press, mm-hmm. you assume it's peer-reviewed, and if it, it's not a university press, you assume it's not. Um, and she had quite an involved story as to why why this was so. Um, so what I'm curious about is the academic adjacent press world. So when we come back, I'm going to ask you about Stackpole. How did you get with them? What do they do for you? Uh, how how does that work? Some some listeners may be interested in writing for a press like that. So we'll come back and talk uh, about publishing, but also we'll get to Burnside's Boys, the Union Ninth Corps, and the Civil War in the East. With our guest tonight, Darren Whipperman, I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P. O W I C Z G at ECU dot EDU. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Darren Whipperman, author of Burnside's Boys, the Union's Ninth Corps, and the Civil War in the East. It's a new book published by Stackpole Books, and we left off the first segment with a question about uh, a publisher like that. Uh, Darren, how much does a publisher, well, let me ask, how did you get connected with the publisher in the first place? Well, I I knew Stackpole had an extensive reputation, and and as you said, in, in quite a few fields, but I knew they'd done a lot of Civil War books through the years, and mm-hmm. I, you know, just put like a proposal together for them, and I, I think I sort of lucked out, to be honest with you, because 
as I've described myself, I'm a, I'm a no-name without a Ph.D., and I guess you can be one of those two things and, and write history and get attention, but I'm, I'm both of those things, so I sort of, I think, just have a, had a harder time attracting attention, um, and I, I, I guess the, the cards worked out just right because I, I attracted Stackpole's interest, and I've, I've worked really well with them. They're, they do a wonderful job working with authors and interacting with them um, and talking them through the process. Cause I'd never, you know, done a, a traditional press like that before. Mm-hmm. And um, they, they really guided me through a lot of things and they make, I, I was just so, so happy with the way the, the layout worked for both of my books and, and how the books look. And they do a really excellent job of that as well. So I, I guess I just I, maybe I timed it right with first for the union, or I I picked a project that had never been done before, and then I came up with another idea for a core history, and they've they've uh, worked with me very well, and and I'm very appreciative of them and and thankful to them for their help. Well, it it, it is an attractive book. It kind of came out well. Um, it has great maps. Uh, Hal Jesperson, the great Civil War cartographer, uh, provides maps yeah. for this. Um, the uh, did you index the book yourself, or do they do that for you? How did that work? Thankfully, they have a, a professional indexer um, that made it look way better than I probably could have, and I think that's one of the reasons why you know the layout looks so nice, the <laughs> the, the, the fabulous index. It, it looks really, really good, and and they they definitely did that for me, and I'm I'm very thankful for that. And, and I, I, I'm trying to decide if I should ask this. Did they charge you for that? Uh, is there a separate charge for indexing? Um, I did not have that, no. Okay. That, that, every, every contract is different. I, I ask that because I wrote a book once where the uh, publisher said, would you like us to index that for you? I said, well, sure. And then that showed up as a charge against royalties that I had not anticipated, oh, wow. and I didn't like the indexing job they did at all. And I, I redid it uh, myself because I, I didn't care for their style. So uh, I, I'm always curious about how others do that. But let's talk about Burnside's Men. We're, we're I'm keeping us off topic, and I apologize. Uh, where where did the Ninth Corps come from? Where, where what was the origin of the unit? The uh very difficult summer in Virginia in 1862 was the origin of the Ninth Corps. Burnside took uh, a coastal expedition to North Carolina early in 1862, and those men had a good deal of success in North Carolina along the coast uh, for several months. And there were also some units in coastal South Carolina and as the catastrophe of the seven days was unfolding on the peninsula in Virginia, there were a wide range of notes flying back and forth. Uh, basically, the president and uh, Secretary Stanton telling Burnside, uh, you need to get some men up to Virginia because we got a problem. Um, and the crisis uh, sort of dissipated by the time Burnside got there, but he took 12 regiments with him from North Carolina, and then seven regiments from South Carolina eventually came up. So he had 19 regiments in late July of 1862, and they were officially constituted the Ninth Corps at that point. So they'd, they'd had some military experience, but but as a unit, we, we 
really start off our story with, uh, with I guess the second the campaign of Second Manassas there because the Peninsula campaign's over by this time. Uh, right? Did they fight at Second Bull Run? Yes, they did. Uh, two of the three divisions went to assist Pope, and then Burnside kept one of his divisions in Frederick in the Fredericksburg area to guard the Rappahannock. Uh, but Jesse Reno was in charge of the two divisions that went to fight at Second Manassas. And then one of the units I've already mentioned, the 6th New Hampshire, had a very difficult day there in the attacks of uh, August 29th. Um, and it was a very formative experience for many of the men there who, you know, they certainly had seen battle in North Carolina, but they never ran into someone like Stonewall Jackson down there. And uh, they had uh, a rough a rough time that day on the 29th of August. And then uh, lost one of their division commanders uh, two days later, or three days later, was it, uh, at, at Chantilly? Yes, uh, Isaac Stevens. Uh, the the Ninth Corps would lose three men with the permanent rank of generals in the month of September 1862 to battle wounds. Hmm. And, and so... And Isaac Stevens was... Go, go Isaac ahead. Stevens, Stevens was the first of those. Yeah, Isaac Stevens was the first of those three. So they they survived the their first encounter there with the the main Confederate Army, Army of Northern Virginia, uh, in September 1862, and then they are part of the Army of the Potomac after that. But while the book is called Burnside's Boys, and Burnside is their their you know, the, the the figure who looms over their whole existence. Uh, when we go into September 1862, they're actually not under Burnside's command. Uh, there's this convoluted relationship. Can you explain what what was Burnside doing and who was commanding the Ninth Corps uh, when we get to the, yeah, he, the September yeah, campaign? He became a, yeah, he became a wing commander at the start of the Maryland campaign. So he basically oversaw the First and Ninth Corps um, in their march to Frederick and beyond in September. Jesse Reno was given command, direct command of the Ninth Corps at that point. And then he would be killed on South Mountain. And then Jacob Cox, whose Ohioans were sent east uh, earlier in the summer, he became the Ninth Corps commander. And as you say, it's it was definitely a little convoluted because technically Burnside was still a wing commander, but at the same time, the first corps was taken out of his wing. So he was the wing commander of the ninth corps and Jacob Cox at Antietam was the commander of the ninth corps. So it, uh, it was a messy, a messy situation. And, and Cox wrote quite extensively of, uh, the difficulties, uh, of that, not that he had a bad relationship with Burnside. They, they were quite good to each other during their short time together, but uh, just the, the command arrangement was a, a very difficult one to, to navigate there for those horrible days. Well, and, you know, listeners will probably be thinking of, of the, the analogy to Meade commanding the Army of the Potomac, but his superior General Grant is in the next tent, uh, so so Meade's got an army to command, but but no no independent authority, so to speak. So similarly, you've got Reno or Cox commanding the Ninth Corps, but Burnside, who has nothing else to do, is commanding a wing consisting of just the Ninth Corps. Yes. It, it, it is confusing. I guess it's difficult to imagine then what the uh, 
what the Corps commander actually does, given that that there's somebody right above him doing the same thing, basically. Yeah, and, and as Cox would say, you know, it's it essentially robbed him of his independence in in some ways, and you know, I, I could see how a, a Corps commander in that kind of situation might be a little more tentative or might not really know whether or not his authority was as it should be, especially on a day as difficult as Antietam. I mean, it was the second bloodiest day the Ninth Corps would ever experience, and not having a clear command arrangement was a detriment, I think, to their operations that day. And just anticipating, well, around the theme of command arrangements, uh, if we jump ahead two years to the Overland campaign, uh, Grant is commanding all the federal armies, but he's traveling with the Army of the Potomac, so which Meade is commanding. And Meade has three, it, there's four corps of Union soldiers involved, but three of them are under Meade, and Burnside's Ninth Corps reports directly to Grant. Uh, the thread continues. Every time you look at Burnside, he's got some weird command arrangement going. Is it something he said? I think what he wrote about the situation about Grant, he seemed positive about it, and I think maybe that was just part of his nature. It wasn't in Burnside's character to publicly say things negative about his commanders. He would have a very difficult relationship with Meade during and after the Battle of the Crater. Uh, I think he felt far more positive about General Grant, um, and it seemed like he... The way he wrote about it, he seemed almost sort of proud to be under General Grant at the start of the campaign, but... It certainly led to difficult moments uh, during the Battle of the Wilderness, and, and I don't see in in a battle in that kind of situation with that topography how you can coordinate uh, three corps with this sort of independent command that, that Burnside had, and, and that also created some, some strange moments um, at the Battle of the Wilderness as well. Mm-hmm. And it would be late in the month when it was finally accepted that Burnside would become part of the Army of the Potomac, and he would be under Meade, even though technically he was superior to Meade in the date of his commission as a major general. So Burnside technically outranked everybody in the Army of the Potomac, including his boss, but he was subordinate to Meade during that time. So he was able to work that out. Uh, You say he had a good relationship with Grant. Uh, In the first section of the book, one of the underlying themes is Meade's relationship with McClellan. Uh, at, at one point, they're calling each other good old Byrne and good old Mac. And other points, it seems like there's a real breakdown of trust. What? What? How do we explain these two? Yeah, they were friends for a very long time. They had known each other for 20 years almost before the Civil War started. And they were definitely in a in a mutually beneficial arrangement, but their friendship, it, it probably helped Burnside way more than it helped McClellan, but I think McClellan was a very dear and honest friend, and I think he, he viewed Burnside as, as a very good man. Um, the clear problems started uh, during the Maryland campaign. Uh, there were some doubts about whether or not Burnside could move quickly enough, um, and that came to fruition there uh, the day after the Battle of South Mountain when the Ninth Corps did not move with the alacrity that McClellan expected. 
and you really don't see the Dear Burn and Dear Mac letters after that. Um, mm. And Burnside was given multiple written reprimands from headquarters uh, between September 15th and through uh, the Battle of Antietam, uh, and they were never really close after that. And uh, I know William Marvel in his biography of Burnside said that they were enemies after they testified to Congress in March of 63. I wouldn't maybe go so far as to say that they were enemies, um, although Marvel's analysis is pretty interesting. But I think that the breakdown in the friendship was clearly, uh, could be clearly linked to problems immediately after the Battle of South Mountain and at Antietam. The uh, the point about Marvel is is interesting because in this book on a number of occasions you will reference what other historians have said about something. Um, uh, take an example when McClellan gets relieved by Lincoln, uh, you suggest some historians have made too much of this, and I, I have to admit I was a little frustrated here because there's a footnote you give your references as a historian ought to do. Uh, but it's a long paragraph with one footnote, so there's the, the, the footnote includes Jeffrey Word, Ethan Rafuse, Stephen Sears. Um, so when you say some historians make too much of this, I couldn't tell which of those three you're referring to, uh, or is it all three? Um, that that uh, it, I guess I'm not trying to, to nitpick a particular incident, but... Uh, uh, you you are not shy about indicating when you disagree with other historians. Yeah, and I guess that that's sort of a risky thing for me to do because I'm uh, I, I haven't written as many books as a lot of those other gentlemen. Um, sometimes I think it's important to maybe point out some different ideas, though, because if if all I did in a book on the Ninth Corps was repeat everything that everybody else had ever said. Um, and, you know, what's the point of doing all the research and the writing and things like that? And I think sometimes it, it's good to maybe reinterpret things and stuff like that. Like when I say, as a result of the Battle of the Crater, you know, Burnside left the Army. Um, he had a lot of problems that day. But I also say that it was Meade's Army, and he screwed up some things that day, too. And maybe Meade should have left as well. Um, and somebody gave me a comment once to say, well... No one's ever suggested that Meade should have left as a result of the Battle of the Crater, and I actually think that was a compliment, and I don't, I'm not sure they meant it as a compliment, but um, when you give ideas that no one's ever thought of before, um, I think that's a good thing in history, because if we're just reading the same book about the Battle of Antietam or the Overland Campaign or everything else, if, if everybody's just writing the same book, um, then then what's the point of history? You know, we have to sort of think through things, as Lincoln said, we must, you know, think anew and act anew sometimes when we're analyzing these big questions, and, and that can that can give us different ideas and, and perspectives that I think are important to keep history alive and to help us understand more about, about the war itself. Well, I, I would certainly agree that if we're just repeating what other people have written, then you're absolutely right. There's no point in doing that. And uh, the 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 person who, who takes uh, a bundle of secondary sources and reads them and then produces another secondary source really doesn't do anything for our understanding. 
Um, we can just go ahead and read that. That, of course, is not what you do here. You have uh, a, a lot of primary sources that you've consulted. You, you have the soldiers' letters, diaries, um, memoirs, articles they've written during or shortly after the war. Uh, so so I, I would agree that it's important for historians to rethink and present uh, a fresh views of the past, but it does need to be based on the the original evidence. If if we're simply arguing about each other's conclusions uh, by reading a bunch of other secondary sources, you're right; that gets us nowhere at all. Uh, sure. uh, and that is and that is of course not what you're doing here. Uh, we're going to take another short break. We will come back in a moment uh, and talk more with our guest tonight, Darren Whipperman. He is the author of Burnside's Boys: The Union's Ninth Corps and the Civil War in the East. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. Voice America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu.edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking this evening with Darren Whipperman, author of Burnside's Boys, the Union's Ninth Corps, and the Civil War in the East. The... uh, most famous engagement of the Ninth Corps, and the one that is illustrated on the cover of, of the book as I'm looking at it, is, of course, the battle for the bridge across the Antietam. Uh, it, Darren, you, you said uh, early on one thing that drew you to the story of the Ninth Corps was what happened in the hours after the capture of the bridge. Uh, what what did you find out about that that phase of the battle? One of the things that really stood out to me was the immense sacrifice of the 35th Massachusetts uh, in the afternoon there west of the bridge. Uh, They left Boston uh, about three and a half weeks before, 
and then they would find themselves in a very key point to stabilize the Ninth Corps line there that afternoon uh, before things really started to fall apart. Um, and they suffered absolutely horrendous losses, uh, 75% casualties among officers. Uh, they would lose half the men that the 35th Massachusetts would lose to uh, fatal battle wounds across the entire war fell in about an hour there west of Antietam Creek. And the story of that regiment really fascinated me at Antietam. And it, it's something that just, it sort of blew me away with how well some of the soldiers wrote about it and uh, just the, the great courage they showed. And, you know, they weren't even technically in the Union Army a month before. They were still up in Boston and they hadn't even gone to war yet. So, and that—that's, I guess, an example of what we were talking about at the end of the last uh, segment. That, that when you do research, when you find, you know, government documents and and letters and memoirs and how the soldiers wrote about it, um, that then gives you the opportunity to, uh, uh, as as you've done here, to say something new and interesting about uh, a section of the uh, of the a battle that, that most of us already know a fair amount about. The uh, the 16th Connecticut was another regiment that uh, has drawn some attention from that same part of the battle, and uh, here I do want to nitpick a little bit. You you point out that a recent historian says accuses the 16th Connecticut of lacking courage in their fight, um, and from the footnote I assume it's Leslie Gordon, uh, uh, whose book is in your bibliography, A Broken Regiment, the 16th Connecticut. Uh, and I would argue she, she doesn't say they lack courage at all, but uh, that they're like the 35th Mass. They're brand new. They're inexperienced. They don't have order or training, and they they give ground. Uh, but it's not that they lack courage. They uh, they they just don't. They're put in a position they can't hold. Which, to be fair, is what you say as well in your book that that, that any regiment put in their position would have been unable to hold that ground. Uh, yeah, and that was such a very difficult piece of ground and a, and a very impossible moment, I think, for for men to to hold. The uh, in the aftermath of of Antietam, Burnside eventually gets promoted to uh, uh, command the Army of the Potomac, which is something he's been offered and refused before. The they end up at Fredericksburg. That story is one that uh, uh, it's always tough to read because we all know how that's going to end, and it's not not going to end well for the Ninth Corps or indeed the entire Army of the Potomac. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm I'm going to gloss ahead of that and and uh, over the weeks that the Corps spends out west. Your your book is titled quite consciously. Uh, the Union's Ninth Corps in the Civil War in the East, uh, leaving open uh, just a brief treatment of, of what Burnside and his men do when they go out west in 63. They come back in 1864 to participate in the Overland Campaign. And would you say this is a new Ninth Corps uh, that we see in, in April and May of 1864? Very much so, yes. There were Many new regiments. Uh, every brigade had new regiments in it. Uh, there were many new leaders, and a lot of the troops had never been in the army before. Uh, so the the central regiments with a long history of the Ninth Corps were still there to a great extent, and 
and their stabilizing influence was quite strong. Uh, but there were many new units. Uh, sometimes, you know, they, they pulled in a few dismounted cavalry, so some cavalry units that didn't even have horses yet. They said, well, you're going to become infantry for a while. Mm. And, of course, they did that across various parts of the Army during the campaign for heavy artillerists, too. It's like you thought you were going to spend the war in the Washington defenses, but here's a musket. Go join the Army and go have fun down in Virginia. So there were some... Uh, some very horrendous losses in the heavy artillery units in the Ninth Corps and, of course, across the whole army. Um, so, yes, the, the Ninth Corps had many new men um, starting in May of 64, and then, of course, with all the shuffling necessary due to casualties and such, um, there would be a lot of men going in and out of the, of the command across the next several weeks and months. And, and as you point out, one of the one of the other new elements is is the United States Colored Troops join the, the they have a whole division in the Ninth Corps, which is more than than anyone else in the Army of the Potomac, and, and they will factor in the, the, the crater battle, as we all know. The we've been talking about uh, you know right, the process of writing, and it just always interests me when you when when you describe the the and battle at, at South Mountain in September 1862, you, you uh, discuss you know, why Burnside's victory was not more complete or why the Army didn't act more quickly. Uh, likewise, at Antietam, there's discussion of you know, what uh, McClellan should have done to have won the battle. Uh, and I would say throughout the book, there's a fair amount of, of what I would call Monday morning quarterbacking, of, of discussing what a military leader should have done, much as uh, you know, sports fans will argue what play should have been called last Saturday or Sunday. Is that the historian's proper role? Well, it certainly can be, it, as long as, like you said a few moments ago, we're true to the sources and the evidence before us can justify it. Um, sometimes I think it is good to look back um, and, and try to perhaps give ideas about what a commander might have done. Um, we have to, of course, do as, um, as has been said, um, we, we must be just before we uh, render judgment. And um, I think it's, it's really important to, to keep that in mind as well. It was incredibly difficult. I, I can't remember the historian who said it, but you know, getting a 19th century army to do what you wanted it to do was an incredibly difficult thing. And we have to understand that and we have to get, we, we have to understand the fog of war. We have to respect the, the great unknowns, the, the inability to coordinate troops and such. So we definitely have to understand all that. But um, sometimes Monday morning quarterbacking can point out new things that people haven't thought about before um and and as long as as long as the, the facts are there um the analysis may point us in different directions but um we can certainly uh learn things from that well, I, I i i certainly agree with your your point that uh, a degree of uh first obviously staying true to the sources is is critical as i think lord acton said uh Accuracy for the historian is not a virtue; it's a duty. Uh, uh, so, so we start with that. But um, yeah, the the the, uh, the the humility 
required to acknowledge all the things you, you just expressed so well that, that we don't know uh, the difficulties involved in, in you know, doing anything with, you know, to quote Clausewitz, you know, in war, everything is simple, but the simplest thing is difficult. Uh, everything is difficult. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, I, I'm, I'm myself reluctant to, uh, to engage in that level, uh, in that style of, of writing, of criticism, um, I'm happy to do when I'm in the stands watching ECU Pirates play and I'll yell at the offensive coordinator, what a complete idiot he must be to call the same running play up the middle every time we get the ball on first down. Uh, mm-hmm. But but in point of fact, I'd, I had the experience last uh, week I was sitting at that ECU soccer match and the team's, uh, uh, not technician, the the. the the the, uh, the guy who runs the numbers, who, who puts monitors on all the players to see how far they run in a game, he does the the, the oh, there's some metrical name for it, uh, but he knew he was he was a member of the staff, and so I was making comments about the game and asking him questions, and he was telling me things I had no idea about that these players did, um, that that why they did one thing or another. I said, oh, that player's injured. Oh, no, she's not hurt. That happens to her all the time. He knew things I didn't know. And I feel that same way about Civil War armies, that um, I, I just uh, you know, I spent a lifetime reading about this and visiting battlefields, but I'm, I'm very reluctant to I'm not shy to say something was done wrong. Uh, we can all do that, but to say, but you should have done it this way. Um, that that that's more than I'm willing to undertake myself. Um, on the other hand, as I said, sometimes we can say things are done wrong, and that brings us to the Battle of the Crater, um, the Ninth Corps' most. Uh, uh, um, oh, you know what? What did Grant say? It was this the sorriest episode of the war? Um, uh, it, it, it could have been so so successful, but, but wasn't. Um, and, and here, I, I would agree with you very much. It, it, the historian is able to say, uh, why did this go wrong? Um, what's the main reason, in, in your view, the, the crater plan went wrong? Well, I certainly say think that, that Burnside had to take the responsibility for it. Uh, one of the things mm-hmm. I found that was very problematic with all the discussion about, you know, the need to rush beyond the crater and seize Cemetery Hill. Uh, when you look at the orders that Burnside wrote to his division commanders, he used the phrase, if possible, twice mm-hmm. in a 40-word paragraph to General Ledley. So, if possible, crown the crest at the point known as Cemetery Hill, occupying, if possible, the cemetery. So whatever verbal discussions they may have had about it, um, the written orders didn't really pass along General Meade's imperative view of speed from moving from the Ninth Corps position uh, to blast through the Confederate lines and then take the hill that was the goal there. Uh, I think one of the most fascinating aspects of this project for me was looking about what happened after the Battle of the Crater and the, the mm-hmm. Court of Inquiry um, and the details in that was something I learned a great deal about um, mm-hmm. 
and the the impact that it had uh, on the army was immense because it it led to Burnside leaving. Um, it it essentially changed greatly uh, the, the outlook and the and the leadership of the Ninth Corps. And of course, General Ludwig leaving was no notable loss. Uh, Some would right. say Burnside leaving was no notable loss too. Um, but um, the, the, the court of inquiry of the crater was quite fascinating. But clearly, the, the sense of urgency did not seem to be with the Ninth Corps that morning on their bloodiest day. Um, and, and certainly, I think Burnside's orders had a good deal to do with that. And I also talk about there wasn't enough support from other elements of the Army. I, I'm not sure the Ninth Corps could have conquered that entire section of the Fredericksburg line by itself, but it was almost called on to do that. Um, and I think General Meade had to own some responsibility for that, but he's the first witness of the Crater Court of Inquiry, and the first thing he says to the court, which included people who were his subordinates in the Army, I can't be held responsible for this. Mm. And so uh, the Court of Inquiry's verdict was the doom of Burnside from the get-go, and there would be no formal Army report about Meade's responsibility for what happened that day as well. That is one of the most fascinating things that in Civil War sources when you have something like that Court of Inquiry, uh, the one that looked into Buell after Perryville or uh, Fitzjohn Porter after Second Manassas, to have all these contemporaries testifying, giving, if, if you could take the Civil War talk radio time machine and go back in time, it's like doing just that. All these guys are there answering mm-hmm. questions about what happened. Uh, it's just a gift from the heavens for historians to read that stuff. Uh, unfortunately, we are not gifted with additional time. We are out of time tonight. Uh, but it has been a great pleasure, uh, Darren, talking with you about your book. It is called Burnside's Boys, the Union's Ninth Corps, and the Civil War in the East. The author is our guest tonight, Darren Whipperman. Darren, thank you for joining me on Civil War Talk Radio. Well, thanks for having me, Jerry. This was a lot of fun. I, I appreciate the opportunity. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.